We're going to be continuing on in the Gospel of Mark today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, so you can begin to turn there. And I think I have an echo. Oh, oh. Do I have an echo? Okay. Testing. A little lower. Let's see if we can knock that out a little bit. As you're turning to Mark 11, uh, what, what we're going to see today in this portion of Scripture is a very, strate- a, a very important principle. The principle among many that we're going to see that I want to focus our attention on today is the fact that when, when the place where we worship fails us, when the place where we come together to worship and honor God hurts us or fails us, our faith gets rocked. Our faith gets rocked. When the place where we worship hurts us, our faith gets rocked. When I was in uh, college at Biola University, I had uh, one of my favorite classes. was a class called uh, Cults of the World. And uh, this course, they, uh, the professor, Kevin Lewis, he surveyed many, many different kinds of cults throughout the world. Uh, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, all, all sorts of, of cults around the world. And one of the things I remember most about that class was a statement that he made toward the very beginning of the semester. He said, he asked the, the class, how many of you know some, of someone who's been in a cult? And a great deal of people raised their hands. And he said, have you ever asked them why they chose to join that cult? And very few people had, had any answers for that. And he went on to explain that the vast majority, not just 50%, not just 60%, but above 70% of people who are in a cult today can look back in their life history can look back over the course of their life and can point to a moment in that life where a Christian church failed them. Does that surprise you? It surprised me. He said over 70% of people in a cult today can look back over their life and point to an instance in that life where the Christian church that they were attending hurt them failed them. And so they found another group that helped them in their eyes. Friends, when the church hurts us, our faith gets rocked. The title of my message today is The Fruitless Temple. What happens when our place of worship fails us? The Fruitless Temple. What happens when our place of worship fails us. And here we are in the Gospel of Mark, continuing on in our series. We, friends, are in the final week of Jesus' life. The Jewish feasts of unleavened bread and the Passover are at hand. Jesus has approached Jerusalem with His disciples and a sizable crowd behind Him. We learned last week that Jesus' triumphal entry into the capital city of Jerusalem came amidst great shouts of acclamation. Hosanna! God save us! But then all of the shouts, all of the joy, was soon silenced 
in the very place where Jesus should have been coronated as Israel's Messiah and King. As Tom put it well last week, the triumphal entry was followed by a rather anticlimactic arrival in the temple. Notice Mark 11.11 and what happened when Jesus finally arrived into the city and, and got to the temple. This is what is said. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when He had looked around at all, all things, as the hour was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Friends, it was like a tourist event. Realize that as He was entering the city, the crowds... The disciples, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And He enters the city, He's walking through and He gets to the temple and He looks around a little bit, takes a few pictures and leaves. Why? Because no one there was prepared to recognize Him as Messiah and King. The crowds might have been, but when He got to the temple, when He got to the place where the crowds grew quiet, wondering what the leaders of Israel would do, they found people in the temple who refused to recognize who Jesus truly was. No coronation. No triumphal entry in the temple. All was quiet. The day was nearly over. The priests were finishing their sacrifices. The rabbis were rolling up their scrolls. And the money changers and the dove salesmen, well, they were closing up shop. No one cared that Jesus of Nazareth was in town. No one paid attention to the One who radiated God's presence much more than the temple itself. You see, the temple was, at this time, void of God's presence. God had entrusted His holy sanctuary to the religious leaders of Israel. He had leased His house to Israel with high hopes that Israel would be the standard-bearer of Yahweh to the nations. And Jesus alludes to God leasing His house to Israel in a parable that's not too far past Mark 11. Take a look at what He says in Mark 12, 1-2. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, built a tower, and He leased it, He leased it, He lent it, to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. God entrusted his vineyard, his very house, the place of his presence to Israel. He had lent it to Israel. And now He had sent His Son Jesus as the authorized representative to see if in fact Israel had properly cared for God's vineyard. Had they represented Yahweh well? Was there fruit on the vine? Let's find out. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verse 12. We're going to read through this story in pieces, not all together. But turn to Mark 11, beginning in verse 12. This is the day after Jesus' triumphal entry and anticlimactic arrival at the temple. This is the morning after. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, He went to see if perhaps He would find something on it. 
But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, had we not read Mark 12, 1-2 just 30 seconds prior to this, we might be at a significant loss for words as to what Jesus is doing with this fig tree. Right? The allusion to fruit here, however, in verses 13 and 14, the allusion to the fig tree and the fruit that Jesus is seeking is clearly, however, paralleled with what we see in Mark 12, 1-2. Looking to come back to the vine dressers to find out if in fact fruit has come to the vine, to the vineyard. You see, friends, Jesus is drawing a parallel here in Mark 11, 13 and 14, and Mark 12, 1-2. He has come looking for fruit. He has come looking for the product of Israel's efforts. He's come to see if they've taken what has been lent to them and have been good stewards of that property. Jesus was hungry for physical food in our text right before us. And the fig tree provided none. It says that, uh, that it was not the season for figs. We might think, well, why in the world was he expecting figs if it wasn't the season for figs? That's a very good question. Um, it, it seems rather uh, odd that Jesus would curse the fig tree for not even being able to produce figs. But such is actually not the case. You see, where we are in the time of Passover is we are in approximately March or April of, of our calendar system. And figs in the ancient Near East, the season for figs was directly after that, was May and June. So March, April, Passover, May, June, the season for figs. But during the season of Passover, those who tended the fig trees could know instinctively whether or not the tree would be fruitful. You see, a tree with leaves would also most likely have buds, have small, tiny, not quite ripe fruit growing on it. And Jesus was going to this tree hoping to find these small edible buds that would soon blossom into full-fledged figs. Full-fledged figs. I just made that up. Alliteration. But He didn't find them. There were no buds on the tree. Only leaves. And Jesus knew instinctively that this tree would not produce figs in season. And so He looked upon that tree and He cursed it. He said, you shall never bear fruit again. Interestingly enough, this is one of the very few times in Jesus' ministry where, uh, we're, as we're going to see, there is a destructive miracle and not a constructive miracle. Where something is going to die, is going to wither instead of be preserved. One of the very few times in which Jesus performs a destructive miracle. But again, Jesus was looking for physical food. The fig tree provided none. And in like fashion, God was hoping to find spiritual refreshment from Israel's work in the temple. He was expecting that the people of the Jews would be up for the challenge posed to them. The challenge to represent God to all the nations. To be a people of peace, love, and reconciliation. But like the fig tree, 
Israel would also fail to produce fruit. Jesus has now left the fig tree. He's entering Jerusalem. He's encountering the temple again. Remember the same temple that just the other day he had walked into, snapped a few pictures, surveyed the scene and left. No coronation, no triumphal entry. Now he's kind of come back. And as he comes back, he finds a commercial enterprise. He finds it filled with corruption and self-service. Instead of a sense of mission, Jesus found a group of leaders more, interesting, more interested in building their net worth. Let's read what Jesus' response was to the temple in verses 15 to 17. It says, So they, Jesus and presumably the disciples, perhaps a small crowd, came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And He would not allow anyone to carry wares or utensils or goods through the temple. Then He taught them, saying, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Temple ministries. Ministries like prayer, sacrifice, repentance, reconciliation. The things that were supposed to happen in the temple of Jerusalem were nowhere to be found when Jesus arrived. The very things that made the temple what it was supposed to be were absent. God was supposed to be there. His presence was supposed to emanate from this place. But fraud and corruption had entered in and had stymied the work of God in the temple. I want to bring up a picture of the temple, actually, uh, for you all to see. This is a, a model, actually, of, of what is known as Herod's Temple. And the reason it's known as Herod's Temple is because uh, King Herod is the one who renovated the temple. This is the same temple built in uh, approximately the 6th and 5th centuries uh, by the Jews after they had returned from Babylon and from Persia. They had come back in the 5th and 6th century B.C. They had rebuilt the temple, but it didn't look all that great. And so Herod came along later on and had renovated the temple. He would put a lot of money into it. Not so much for religious purposes, but more for his own uh, political prowess uh, to, to gain credibility in the eyes of the Jews. Herod's temple, as you can see this model, this is a model that's actually found in the city of Jerusalem. You can actually walk and see this model of the old ancient city and, 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 and I, I got a chance to look at this in person. It was absolutely spectacular. And this, we are looking at, is the model of Herod's temple. I've pointed out the court of the Gentiles, which is to the bottom right-hand corner there. As you can see, the, the Holy of Holies is in that large, tallest building there. Uh, in kind of the inner sanctum is where uh, much of the uh, sacrifices and some of the, the holiest of the ordinances would take place. But in the outer court of the Gentiles is most likely where these money changers were. Where the people selling doves were. Where the dishonest businessmen were. 
it is most likely that people would enter the temple grounds and they would enter through the court of the Gentiles and they would see what Jesus saw. They would see what Jesus saw and what Jesus dispersed. But what's interesting about the court of the Gentiles is that this place in the temple was set aside specially by God so that Gentile persons could come into the fold, if you will, of Judaism and could worship within the gates of the temple. The court of the Gentiles was set aside so that Gentiles, so that all nations, so that the Jews could represent Yahweh to all nations and bring them in the court of the Gentiles so that the Gentiles could worship Yahweh, the one true God. And Lou of the worship that was supposed to be happening there was a bazaar. Tom Constable has a very good quote uh, regarding this matter. He says this, God permitted Gentiles to come and worship Him in the temple court of the Gentiles, indicating His desire to bring them into relationship with Himself. The Jewish leaders, however, had made this practically impossible by converting the only place Gentiles could pray in the temple complex into a market where fraud abounded. They had expelled the Gentile worshipers to make room for robbers. Worship was closed for business. In lieu of it, money was being had. Profits were being made. And the Gentiles, in their place where they were supposed to worship, Instead, they saw a spectacle. It's no wonder that Israel had very little influence on the Roman government at this time. Jesus, upon seeing the, the bazaar in the court of the Gentiles, in His Father's most holy place, He grew incredibly angry. He would have none of this. And so He drove them out. He upended the money-changing tables he halted those who were passing through the court of the Gentiles and said, you, you, you're not just to bring your merchandise through here. You're not to bring your wares, your goods. You don't just walk through the temple as if it's a thoroughfare, as if it's a, as if it's a carnival. This is holy ground. Jesus saw what was taking place and He was disappointed. And so He made some changes. He made some changes. And I, I, ask, uh, I ask us the question, what changes would Jesus make here? In the court of the Gentiles, a place of worship for all nations, business was taking place. Jesus made changes to that. Here's our place of worship, Coast Bible Church. We're sitting in a Sanctuary, or as Larry Thayer used to call it, an auditorium. He never wanted to call it a sanctuary. I don't know why. We're sitting in this sanctuary, and uh, this, this is our place of worship, right? The barn is Epic's place of worship. And in these places of worship, where we come and where we teach and where we sing and where we glorify God, what changes would Jesus make? What tables would He overturn? 
How are we in this place not fulfilling our role as the church? Where is money, uh, materialism, and the bottom line, where is, has that infiltrated at all? We need to constantly be asking ourselves, friends, in our place of worship, is there anything that needs to change? And if there is, we need to act upon it. And I, I invite you, I invite you to come and speak with me or an elder uh, if you notice something that needs to change in our place of worship. If you see something that is worldly in our place, I want to know about it. And I know the elders do. And we are ready and willing to make changes as needed so that this place can be holy ground when we walk into it. Back to our story. Now Jesus' actions have, uh, have raised some eyebrows, to say the least. Just the other day, He had come into the city with shouts of Hosanna, but no one in the temple had paid attention to Him. And now He has done a little temple remodeling. Now He's garnered some of the attention of the leaders. Take a look at verse 18 and 19. And when the scribes and the chief priests, they heard it. They heard the commotion. They heard what Jesus said in verse 17 and sought how they might destroy Him. For they feared Him because all the people were astonished at His teaching. And when evening had come, He, Jesus, went out of the city. The rulers... The leaders of the temple heard Jesus' condemning words, witnessed His defiant actions. They knew that Jesus had garnered the love and and admiration of the people. And they feared Him. They feared His hold on the people. They feared that the influence that He had over the people might dislodge their own selfish control over Israel. And so it should come as no surprise that Mark mentions that they immediately sought how they might destroy Jesus. As I thought about this uh, verse 18, you know, I I couldn't help but think of just they're, they're losing power. They're losing influence. And what is their response? How can we get it back? They've lost power. They've lost influence. And all they can think of is, how can I get it back? Parents, your children are going to grow one day. Those of you who have grown children, you'll know what I'm speaking of. They're going to leave home one day. They're going to turn 18, 19, or 20, or in some cases like 29, or 35. And some... One day, they are going to leave home. They're going to look upon all you've done for them and they're going to walk out and say, thanks mom, thanks dad, bye-bye. I know at that moment in time, a lot of parent-child relationships get ruined. And you know why? Because the parent doesn't like having control. And they try to take it back. What about in the workplace? Someone, you're, you're competing with a colleague at work and someone gets promoted before you do. Oh, 
You lost power. You lost influence. All of a sudden, you want to get it back. You want to control it again. There's many, many ways, many, many instances in the world where we, where we see the power that has just now, been gone, just now left our grasp and we try to get it back. Friends, we need to be careful with the power and the influence that is entrusted to us because it is precisely that, entrusted to us. It's a stewardship. It's not about us. Um, I'm a firm believer that the elders of this church are elders today because they didn't seek power. I'm a firm believer in that. That the leaders of a church, that God raises up people who actually don't seek power for their own gain. He raises up people who are servant leaders, who care about the church, who care about giving of themselves, service, self-sacrifice. Chief priests and the scribes, they lost power and they wanted it back immediately. How do you handle the loss of power? Jesus now has uh, he's left the temple. And He's left Jerusalem, as a matter of fact. He's gone out the city gates again uh, to lodge for the night. And the next morning, as they begin to walk again toward Jerusalem, something very peculiar happens. Verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. The fig tree that Jesus had pronounced a curse on no more than 24 hours ago was noticeably dying. The tree had borne no fruit, and Jesus had, in a sense, condemned the tree for failing to fulfill its purpose. Now, in a moment, in verse 22, we're going to read Jesus' concluding remarks here about the story of the fig tree. In fact, verses 22 to 26 are going to serve as a lesson, if you will, to be learned from the encounter with the fig tree. Now, we might rightfully expect Jesus to draw great parallels between the fruitlessness of the fig tree and the fruitlessness of those in the temple in Jerusalem. We might expect Him to draw that, pa- that parallel in verses 22 to 26. And I do believe that parallel is there. But Jesus doesn't do that. He does something somewhat unexpected. And it's not entirely easy to figure out why He does what He does in verses 22 to 26. I will say this as we approach this text, that it's quite likely that Jesus' disciples already recognize the parallels. And if they didn't see it right away, they would certainly learn about it from the parable of the vine dresser in Mark 12, 1-2 that we read earlier. They would certainly learn about those parallels. The question here is not whether the disciples would come to understand the fruitlessness of Israel. That lesson would take care of itself soon enough. What was truly on the mind of the disciples at this particular juncture in their life was how in the world they were going to carry on in their faith and worship of Yahweh without a temple. Let me say that again. What was truly on the mind of the disciples at this particular juncture in their life was how in the world they were going to carry on their faith and worship of God without a temple. 
without a place of worship. Friends, we need to recognize that, and I've saved it till, till here to, to just draw this out in us, we need to recognize that, that the temple in the ancient Near East, any temple, whether it was a Jewish temple or a pagan temple, the temple was always considered the meeting place between God and man. And what was striking for all of the Jews, not least the disciples, was that Jesus had entered the place of worship, the place of meeting the God of Israel, and had trashed it. Sure, the disciples probably agreed with Jesus to a large degree that that the temple was not the place of worship that it once was. Nevertheless, it remained their place of worship. And Jesus had effectively trashed it. By many eyes, He had desecrated it. He had profaned it. I want to read an excerpt from a a book that uh, had a great great impact on me throughout my uh, early studies in, in the Word of God at Biola. Uh, this book is called The Challenge of Jesus by uh, N.T. Wright. Um, I don't agree with everything N.T. Wright says, but he nails, he nails it when it comes to the temple. Listen to what he says about the Jewish perspective on the temple. N.T. Wright says, The temple was the heart and center of Judaism. It was the vital symbol around which everything else circled. It was supposed to be where Yahweh Himself dwelt, or at least had dwelt and would do so again. It was the place of sacrifice, not only the place where sins were forgiven, but also the place where the union and fellowship between Israel and her God was endlessly and tirelessly consummated. The temple was their place of worship. And imagine for a moment that you entered here on a Sunday and there was graffiti everywhere. And the pews were upended. And the cushions were ripped. The hymnals thrown about. The Bibles thrown about. That would rock your world. It would rock my world entering into this place and seeing it totally trashed. That's what Jesus did in the temple. That's what Jesus did in the eyes of the disciples. They weren't sure what to make of His actions. Certainly the rest of the Jews weren't sure what to make of it. The highest expression of of the worship of the God of Israel was found in the temple at Jerusalem. And Jesus had just told them, both by His words and His actions, that the temple where they worshipped was hopelessly corrupt. And when the place of your worship is corrupted, your faith gets rocked. Your faith gets rocked. Have you ever been a part of a church where some kind of corruption surfaced? 
Have you ever been a part of a church where a pastor or a leader, uh, some sort of corruption or sin was made known to the people in the church? What did that do to your spiritual life? What did that do to your faith? See, friends, our ability to worship, our ability to carry on in our faith, whether we like it or not, is often largely contingent upon how we feel about our place of worship. About how we feel about the integrity of the leaders at our place of worship. And when the church is corrupt, when the leaders are corrupt, our faith gets rocked. I have no doubt each of you, many of you, have a story to tell about how your faith was rocked by some corruption in a church environment. So what is Jesus going to do in verses 22 to 26? What's He going to do in light of the fact that the disciples' faith has have been rocked? He is going to restore their confidence. They are discouraged. We don't read it in the text. It's not explicit in the text. But I can assure you, after such an event as that, the disciples and many, many people in Israel were discouraged about what had transpired in the temple. And Jesus' intent in verses 22-26 to is going to be to restore their confidence in the God of Israel and in how they are now to worship Him. Take a look at verses 22-26. to Starting with 22-24 to begin with. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Let me paraphrase. Have faith in God. Do not grow discouraged that your temple has been profaned. Have faith in God. Keep faith in Him. Not the place where you once sought to worship Him. Have faith in Him. Do not worry about those who have corrupted the place of your worship. Have faith in God. Ben Witherington writes, Jesus argues that to abandon faith in the temple is not to abandon faith in God. Just because the temple was now no longer the place of worship, or at least the place where worship was done in holiness, does not mean that the disciples' faith or the faith of others who are looking for the Son of David needs to be rocked. Jesus reminds the disciples that their ability to relate to and worship God is not inextricably tied to the temple. Instead, Jesus has come. And He's come as the great mediator. We learn about this in Paul, but Jesus is alluding to it here. He's, he's come as the great mediator between God and man. The middleman. 
He has come to mediate between God and man to show man the way back to God. And the disciples are now fully capable of having access, access, direct access to God despite the loss of the temple. And that's why Jesus speaks about prayer here. You're saying, why is He talking about prayer? Because in their eyes, in order to properly pray, in order to properly worship God, they must go into where? The temple. Go into the place where God is. Go through the mediation of a priest. Ah, but they're all corrupt now. Ah, the temple's all corrupt now. It's hopeless. Where can we find direct access now to God? Jesus says, have faith in God. I have come, Jesus says, to be that mediator between you and God. No longer do you need the temple. No longer do you need it. I will give you direct access. And when you pray to God in faith, He will answer your prayers. He will give you the hope that you've lost. Verse 23 says something very peculiar. Jesus says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. A considerable amount of biblical scholars believe that Jesus' words in verse 23 about the mountain being cast into the sea were very carefully selected by Jesus. Carefully selected by Jesus to remind them of something that was going to happen in the future. You see, in the future, in the coming day of the Lord, the Jews were well aware of the fact that great cataclysmic events would take place. And as Jesus is speaking these words in verse 23, you know where He's standing upon, or you know at least where the mountain that He is right near uh, you know what that mountain is? It's the Mount of Olives. They've left Jerusalem. They're probably walking over the Mount of Olives or right next to it. And Jesus is walking by and saying, you see that mountain? If you pray for that mountain to collapse into the sea, if you pray with faith, it will happen. These words were selected carefully. And they were meant to draw the disciples' attention most likely. Back to Zechariah chapter 14. Take a look. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and in that day His, the Redeemer's, the Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And oh, what's to the south? The Dead Sea. Remove the mountain and be cast into the sea. It's possible. It's very, very possible, if not probable, that Jesus is suggesting here, He's saying, disciples, listen, just because the temple is corrupt does not mean the day of the Lord is past. God is coming. Jesus says, I am coming back. And I will stand on this mountain one day and it will be split into two. 
And it will vanish into the sea, and the day of the Lord will come, and righteousness and peace and reconciliation will be restored to Israel. And you should pray for that day, Jesus says. Maranatha, come, Lord, come quickly. Pray for that day. It is coming, Jesus says. Ben Witherington has these words in relation to Zechariah 14. He says, It is just possible that when Jesus speaks in verse 23 about this mountain being cast into the sea, He is referring to the Mount of Olives and the Dead Sea. Verse 23 should not be seen as a general exhortation to prayer and faith, but prayer for and faith in the eschatological action of God in Christ. That is to say, the future work of God through Jesus Christ. Pray for it. Have faith that it is coming. Don't worry about a corrupt temple. This, this, is, uh, this is powerful. I, I learn much in studying this portion of Scripture. And I don't think it's foolproof that this is in fact the angle Jesus was taking. I don't think we can be 100% confident of that. But as I read this text... I'm very persuaded this is what Jesus was doing here. I'm very persuaded that He was not just talking generically about prayer, but that He was talking strategically, saying the day is yet to come when the world will be brought to rights. Keep faith. Though your temple is no longer the place of your worship, keep faith in God. Keep faith that one day even this mountain will be laid aside when I return for final judgment of the world and restore the true worship of God in a new and pure temple of God in the coming kingdom. Ask God to bring this day. Pray that this day would arrive. Keep faith. Do not lose heart. Finally, verses 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. The temple was the place of forgiveness for the Jew. It was the place where forgiveness was found, where right standing before God was accomplished. Yet Jesus had purged and judged that temple. And now that the temple was, in effect, dismantled, what would become of forgiveness? How would it be attained? How might it be sought? Where else could one go to find forgiveness now that the temple was gone? Jesus says, Me. Me. You can come to Me for forgiveness. Jesus now replaces the temple as the center of worship. He has become the place where God manifests Himself to the nations. And I want to read two more brief selections from Wright on this matter. Two more selections on the fact that Jesus has replaced what the temple has lacked. It says this, N.T. Wright comments, Jesus acted and spoke as if He was in some sense called to do and be what the temple was and did. 
His offer of forgiveness with no prior condition of temple worship or sacrifice was the equivalent of someone in our world offering a private individual to issue someone else a passport or a driver's license. Let me read that again. His offer of forgiveness, Jesus' offer of forgiveness, with no prior condition of temple worship or sacrifice, was the equivalent of someone in our world offering as a private individual to issue someone else a passport or a driver's license. He was undercutting the official system and claiming by implication to be establishing a new one in its place. Where Jesus was and where His followers were, Israel's God was present and active in the same way as He normally was in the temple. Jesus replaced what the temple lacked. The temple could no longer offer sinful people right standing before God because the temple was a den of thieves. So Jesus alludes to the fact that no longer would the temple be needed to find forgiveness. Forgiveness could be sought between persons with the Spirit of Christ in their midst. Jesus wanted the disciples to act significantly differently than the temple officials. The temple officials had wronged Israel. And Jesus' strong words in verses 25 to 26 suggest that one day they would reap what they have sown. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you yours. That comment from the words, the lips of Jesus is not a comment that is to be taken in terms of, well, if I don't ask forgiveness for every single sin I've done in all my life, each and every day, and if I miss one, I might go to hell. No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But He is using the principle of you reap what you sow. Whether you are saved by faith in Christ and you go on into the kingdom of God, or whether you deny Christ, do not have faith in Him and you go to hell, you will yet reap what you sow in the kingdom or in the place of condemnation. There will be those in the kingdom who forgive others their trespasses who will be honored greatly. There will be others in the kingdom who retain grudges, who don't forgive, who are hard-hearted, and who will enter the kingdom with fire on their heels, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. They'll just get in. By contrast, by contrast to the temple officials, who had no business offering forgiveness. They were sinful. Jesus urges the disciples to be a group of leaders who not only seek God in prayer, but seek Him with a clean heart, having unity and love for their brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. What can we learn from our study today? Four things that I've come up with today that I think we can take with us and walk out of this place of worship with. Number one, our ability, and I said this earlier, our ability to worship and carry on in our faith is often dependent upon how we feel about our place of worship and the integrity of our leaders. Now I make this comment to bring it to number two. Number two, leaders of the church, your character and the decisions that you make will affect the faith of others. So imitate Christ as you lead. Um, time and time again, I, I see this happening where the faith of the people in the church is just crushed by poor decisions, 
by poor character of their leaders. And I'm not just talking the pastor and elders, I'm talking about ministry leaders. I'm talking about Bible study leaders. All of you involved in leadership, you have a sacred trust not to put a stumbling block in the way of a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Your character, your character, your good character will keep that stumbling block from forming. Your good decisions, your wisdom and prudence will keep the people of the church, will keep their faith secure. Thirdly, if you have been hurt by the church, and I imagine many of you have, perhaps by this church, perhaps by another, keep faith in God. Keep faith in God. Do not let people of the church discourage you from worshiping and serving the Lord. Be encouraged that Jesus is coming again to set the world aright. He will stand on that Mount of Olives one day. It will fall away into the sea and the world will be brought to rights. And fourth and finally, God has leased us this church like He leased Israel the temple. Are we bearing fruit? Are we bearing fruit? The temple in Jerusalem was a fruitless temple. And as it was a fruitless temple, the faith of many was rocked. What happens to our faith when our place of worship fails us? It it, it can get rocked, friends. And my prayer for us is that this church would be a place where fruit abounds, where the leaders and the teachers of this church have good character and make wise decisions that collectively our faith can be made strong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for the opportunity You've given us to have direct access to You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't need a priest anymore. We don't need a temple we, we come to church and we hear Your Word preached, but Lord, You've given us Your Spirit. And regardless of whether or not the church fails us, which it will from time to time, regardless of whether or not our leaders fail us, which they will from time to time, Lord, may we have faith in You. May we remain secure in You and not lose hope because the institution is corrupt. May we not let people get in our way of worshiping You. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for our leaders that we will be men and women of great character, of prudent decision-making. Father, may You bless us and may the collective faith of this church grow strong together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.